From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Carter Gorzitza. And I'm Sophia Osborne, and we'll be your host for the next 30 minutes of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Has anyone ever told you that you should probably vegetabilize your sensorium? Have you ever really thought about your relationship with your plants? This week, Tara and former Mandaruni chat with professor and author Natasha Myers about these questions and a lot more. But before we get into that interview, here are this week's environmental news headlines. The first headline we have to share is a piece of environmental legislation from the United States. It's called the Green New Deal, and it was proposed by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Republicans have called it a socialist manifesto, while environmental groups have hailed it. This proposal has been in the works for a while, but we thought we'd share a few facts for those of you who haven't yet heard about it. Essentially, the Green New Deal is an ambitious, broad-sweeping legislation that seeks to address economic inequity and climate change at the same time. The legislation aims to make the U.S. economy carbon neutral in the next 10 years, while ensuring that vulnerable populations, including the poor, people of color, indigenous communities, and other communities already facing environmental degradation, take part in the planning process and benefit from the emergent green economy. The document presents a, quote, 10-year national mobilization, end quote, to address climate change with policies that would build climate change resiliency, upgrade infrastructure, increase renewables and zero emissions energies, expand energy efficiency, reduce agricultural emissions, overhaul transportation with electric vehicles, and bolster forest growth. The politics of the plan are difficult, since the Republicans in control of the Senate and the White House are vehemently opposed, while conservative-leaning Democrats seem split over whether being openly democratic socialist is the right approach. Most attempts to address climate change in the USA and around the globe have been local and specific. The kind of system-wide thinking and planning represented by the Green New Deal will be difficult to adopt, but it is also the first plan to even come close to addressing the full scale of the climate crisis and the extreme economic inequality ravaging people in the United States. The Green New Deal does not look like it will be resolved by the governments anytime soon, but it's definitely something to keep your eyes on. The full plan can be found and read online by Googling the Green New Deal. In other news, on Friday, March 8th, the Norway Ministry of Finance released a policy paper recommending the sale of oil and gas exploration stocks from its sovereign wealth fund, the Government Pension Fund Global, or GPFG, representing some $8 billion and about 150 companies. This is not the first time Norway has considered selling some of these assets as a similar report was released in 2017, but having passed government approval, the sale seems to be finally coming to lawmakers and fruition. While this is good news, some media have been promoting the report as a major divestment and big win for the environment. This is somewhat misleading, and the details are a little bit more complicated. Yes, Norway will be selling some of its oil and gas exploration portfolio from its one trillion GPFG fund, but by no means all of it. Only a portion of smaller exploration company stocks are being sold, while stocks in the big players like Shell, BP, and Total will remain in the fund. Norway argues that the big companies kept in the GPFG fund are using capital from oil and gas production to invest in renewable energy, shifting the market with their size, so pulling investment would be negative for growth in renewables. 
However, Norway has also made clear that the decision to sell these stocks is motivated by economic rather than environmental reasons. Norway earns income from oil and gas in two ways. Through the state-owned integrated oil and gas producer Equinor, formerly Statoil, and through investment in other ventures funded by the GPFG. By investing in oil and gas through Equinor and GPFG, Norway faces financial insecurity from oil price drops on two different fronts. To make the country more financially secure, the Norwegian Central Bank has suggested selling all oil and gas assets in the GPFG, but the government has firmly said no, making this smaller sale instead. At the same time, Equinor is rebranding itself as an energy rather than oil and gas company, suggesting interest in using oil and gas profits to fund renewables. The actions taken by Norway, while green in an absolute sense of not funding any oil and gas exploration, are still funding large oil and gas producers and their existing exploration. This is blatantly not divestment. There is no suggestion of a moral or ethical argument in Norway's reasons for selling these assets. So while one of the largest wealth funds in the world protects itself from financial uncertainty of oil and gas prices, Norway hasn't really taken a stand for the environment in this decision. Now for this week's story. Terra informer Amanda Rooney is no stranger to the Anthropocene. It's a term that brings with it an emotional heaviness. Natasha Myers is a professor at York University who wrote a satirical guide titled How to Grow a Livable World in 10 Not-So-Easy Steps, which is playfully described as an incantation to be used to conjure up new worlds. Some of Meyer's other works involve looking at science and scientists through an anthropological lens. Amanda had a chance to interview Natasha Myers about her work, Radical Thinking, and her relationships with plants. My name is Amanda Rooney, and I am a fourth-year environmental studies student at the University of Alberta. So I've spent the last few years of my degree being introduced to concepts that are used to understand our relationships to the living world. More recently, I've been learning a lot about the Anthropocene. It's a term that's very hot right now in both academia and pop culture. So one day when I was noodling around on the internet looking at Anthropocene-related things, I came across a 10-step guide called How to Grow Livable Worlds, 10 Not-So-Easy Steps. The author of the guide is Natasha Myers, a professor at York University. The guide is actually a pretty satirical poking fun at all the blank easy steps to blank that are floating around on the internet today. Myers describes the guide as an incantation to be used to conjure up new worlds. She emphasizes the need for art, experiment, and radical disruption to envision new ways of being. I was struck by the balance between dire urgency and Meyer's playful attitude. The guide really helped me break out of my Anthropocene-induced slump and helped me reconceptualize how I think about science and my relationship with plants. I came to anthropology um, from environmental studies, and I came to environmental studies from biology, and from specifically plant biology. So I've had a very strange trajectory um, through my interests, um, 
first as a very young person uh, dancing. I was a dancer um, trained in classical ballet and um, modern dance and then became a plant biologist while I kept dancing and later um, found a way to weave together my dance practice and my passion for plants in thinking about ways to um, uh, rethink our relationship with the environment in an environmental studies degree. And then from somehow in that space, I discovered um, uh, an area uh, many know as feminist science studies. Science studies are science and technology studies, but with a, a, a very strong feminist orientation. And, um, and perhaps that's where some of the radical thinking uh, that I'm interested in comes in, is through the kinds of ways that feminist scholars have challenged um, science as a as a source, in a sense, of racialization, as a source of um, uh, colonial uh, power, um, and science as kind of an instigator um, and an accomplice to capitalist projects. There's a whole range of ways that um, science really compelled my interest, both from being a practicing scientist to someone um, thinking alongside scientists and trying to figure out ways to challenge um, the hegemony of scientific thinking and even more so the hegemony of the ways that non-scientists think about science. What really made me interested in talking to Dr. Myers was this concept that she introduces in her 10-step guide to growing more livable worlds. And the concept is... Plantthropocene. After taking a course called Anthropocene Feminism, I've been really interested in the term, the Anthropocene, and the politics around it. So I'll take a moment to catch you up to speed. The Anthropocene is a suggested term for the next geologic epoch. It is aptly named with the prefix anthropos to suggest that humanity is the largest driver of climactic change. Within academia, there have been significant critiques of the term suggesting that it is overly anthropocentric at a time when we should be paying attention to other beings and systems. There has also been pushback against implicating all of humanity as responsible for climactic change, since some of us have done more to contribute to the problem across space and time than others. As you'll hear from Dr. Myers, her idea of the Planthropocene counters Anthropocene thinking that makes you think, oh my gosh, we're all going down, grab your stuff and run. And she tries to encourage you to think about those beings that make life possible. So um, I fell in love with plants uh, while I was doing an undergraduate degree in plant biology. And um, I feel like I've been abducted by them and that I'm doing their work. Um, that they have put me to work. And so I took, I did my master's degree on plants and then for my PhD, I took a little break from them and then I came back to them and I've just been uh, following them anywhere, everywhere they lead me. And, um, and at one point I realized that what I was practicing uh, was a form of planthropology. What I was interested in was that profound relationship between plants and people which is at the core of all of our economies. It's at the core of all of our cultures. It's at the core of all of our uh, capacities to live and breathe on this planet. And I, what I want to be able to highlight in my inquiry is that deep, profound relation. What would happen if we centered not just the anthropos, but the planthropos, 
as a singular figure, one that is already coming together of many, many, many other beings. And so when I think about the Planthropos, I understand that the relationship of people to plants is that people are not just connected to plants, people are not just dependent on plants. We are of the plants. And so, in fact, plants created the possibility for us to be. Um, and so this is uh, an awakening to the fact that plants were the creatures who actually terraformed the planet um, billions of years ago to create a habitable world that we uh, that we rely on now. And so if we start to recognize our kinship as kind of a fundamental, inextricable kinship between plants and people, we need to, we need to, we need a new figure um, that no longer sees humans as separate from, no longer sees humans as dominating plants, no longer sees humans as, um, uh, as just the gardeners um, moving plants around in the world. Here we have an opportunity to focus on the profound relation, the inextricable relation between plants and people. So the planthropos and that figure sparked for me um, a really profound thinking about the age that we're in right now. And so we've all heard the term the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. And the Anthropocene, which names man as the singular agent who is responsible for our current planetary crisis. What I wanted to highlight is where the Anthropocene is about the naming of a geological era that will be the end of us and the end of the planet. The Planthropocene intervenes by proposing not a geological era, but an mm -hmm. aspirational way of thinking about how we can get to know the world that asks us to, to remember that we are of the planet and that we are here only because they are here and that our future hinges on their future. It's a shift in our attention from the dire horror that we do currently face now to say all is not lost. Um, in fact, we already have here in our midst ongoing rad radical solidarity projects that plants have cultivated with people for millennia. Wait a second, all we need to do is name our most powerful allies. And then we will begin, if we can begin to form livable relationships with them, relations with plants that allow plants to flourish and allow people to flourish alongside their plants, we would actually create conditions that could alter what so many see as the unavoidable future of apocalypse. So don't get too far ahead of yourself and think that Natasha Myers is suggesting that we should end humanity. Humans are not inherently disconnected from the landscapes that support us. Many societies and individuals still embrace values that respect the power and the necessity of plants. You know, this says, you know, we need people and we need specifically those anthropos noxine, which is a beautiful term coined by Marisol de la Cadena. Those anthropocene who are those people who colonialism and capitalism try to basically wipe out. And those are the people who actually have never forsaken the depth of their relationship with plants. 
So these are the indigenous people, these are the local people, these are the gardeners, the farmers, the hunters, the herbalists, the shaman all over the world who have deep, close, and abiding relationships with plants um, that foster healing relationships with land, that, you know, people who are growing foods in ways that enrich the soils rather than deplete them, people who are harvesting uh, from forests in ways that um, create new possibilities for those uh, forests for the future. And so for me, the difference between the Anthropocene and the Planthropocene is, on the one hand, the Anthropocene is indebted to colonialism and capitalism. The Anthropocene is made by colonial impulses and by capitalist extraction. The Planthropocene requires that we break the world that capitalism has made, that we break the world that colonialism has has shaped for us. And we disrupt those relationships as dramatically as possible so that we can get down to the business of growing livable worlds. So you kind of mentioned this like like cultivating deeper, more um, reciprocal relations with plants. Um, do you have any other like concrete examples that um, people could maybe relate to of like cultivating a positive relationship with plants? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, there's so many ways to do that. And, and um, it begins with us recognizing that we, we live in a world where, you know, every piece of land has been enclosed um, by some law, by some concrete, by a fence by a wall and every bit of earth including like the the bits of earth in our potted plants on our windows windowsill and the pots that are so buckets pots little tiny garden pots all of these are kinds of enclosures that that humans have made i, I you know national park boundaries uh state boundaries etc all of these um we have already enclosed the plants in very human world and um but those enclosures uh, don't have to work as just impositions, and they also can foster really important spaces for plants to be, for people to begin to relate well to plants. And so, I want to think about the possibility of people building relationships with the plants on their windowsill, with the trees outside their home, with forests, with with lands where we grow our food, in the cracks in the pavement, on the sidewalk. The first thing involved in this is a kind of an awakening to the plant worlds around us which includes awakening to, oh, my God, why is there so much concrete? Like, how is it that we can, how can we shape a livable relationship with plants and trees if there is so much concrete? Mm -hmm. If there are, if, you know, we're um, pumping pesticides into the soil, if we're um, filling the air with noxious fumes, if we're um, pouring salt on the roadways uh, through the winter. So... So part of it is an awakening to, wait a second, what are these plants up to and where are they all and where have we put them? <laughs> like, yeah. where have we placed them? And ask ourselves, how are we staging our relationships with plants? For me, and I think in popular culture, when you think of, like, an apocalyptic post-human kind of snapshot would be this like city that's like concrete crumbling and there's all these plants growing everywhere. And it's interesting to kind of think of, of that, but also humans not being absent, humans like being in that and like mm -hmm. conspiring mm -hmm. with the plants to kind of create this landscape. Yeah. 
how do we not read um, plant exuberance as a site of cultural ruin? Is really what I'm thinking about. How do we actually look at co-flourishing, figure out a way to build our cities in ways that always create affordances for plants? Some people are very worried when I say let plants grow where they want to, because we also we do have a very serious problem with plants that are uh, taking over. So these plants that many call invasive species, where they're plants at a pace. And what I want to point us to in those circumstances is that. You know, whose fault is it that <laughs> uh, that the plants are taking over? Because the plants are in relationship to land. When those relations are broken, say, uh, when you remove all the people who are tending a forest, or you remove all the people who are caring for the land and caring for the plants, thinking about colonization, dispossession, when you raise the land, when you develop the land, when you turn the land to rubble, of course, you've changed those relations, right? You've altered those relations. So for me, the problem of invasive, invasive species is a problem of human colonization. Mm-hmm. All these spaces are kinds of gardens, and those gardens need gardeners. Um, but we don't have to garden as if uh, we're recreating some Edenic narrative of nature enclosed within some garden, some pure, pristine nature that um, is supposed to um, enthrall us with its beauty. Um, No, what I'm asking for is a kind of a way to radicalize our relationship, to to encourage plants to grow where they they maybe shouldn't, (laughs) where our laws say they shouldn't. So things like guerrilla gardening, uh, seed bombs that activate um, indigenous seed on agricultural lands that are uh, full of Monsanto crops. Mm-hmm. Or, um, so these ways of ways where we can activate a kind of conspiracy with the plant. Conspiracy, because it, it holds the word conspire, which is to breathe together. Like we need to actually conspire with plants' will, plants' desire, what do plants want? Where do they want to grow? How do they want to heal the soil? How do they want to move the water? A livable world uh, would would have cities where every surface of every building is an affordance for a plant to, for a seed to arise, for a plant to take root, to flourish, and to die. And so part of the part of the work of recognizing plant liveliness is also recognize how important plant death is. Mm-hmm. Instead of clearing away the, uh, dead matter from the, out of a parkland or clearing away the, uh, dead matter from a garden, how do we fold the dying matter back into the soil to help plants complete their cycle? There's some beautiful, beautiful examples um, about plant people conspiracies. My, one of my favorite is um, at the Land Institute in Kansas where West Jackson has succeeded in back-crossing uh, grains like wheat mm-hmm. to their perennial ancestors, like grasses that would grow on the plains. And so what he's trying to do is create grains that could feed people, but that don't require annual tilling of the soil. They don't require new seed each year. They, um, his... Um, 
perennial grains have rhizomes that run 20 feet deep into the soil. They hold the water. They hold the soil down from erosion. They uh, encourage incredibly diverse uh, uh, flora, microflora to, to thrive in the soil bed. They keep the soils alive. And if you can regenerate the grasslands that gave rise to the plains, you'd actually be able to bring back the buffalo. Mm-hmm. Because you do need, you actually, you do need animals to trample on uh, on the on these grasses in order to begin to break and begin the new cycle each year. So there's a way of reimagining agriculture that not only feeds people, but also nourishes the soil and, and brings back um, animals that we've lost to land. And so there's a real transformation in our thinking, um, and it's a kind of thinking that isn't about you know, there is no, once you perennialize the grains, there's no patent <laughs> mm-hmm. you can make, right? There's no, you can't profit. It's not about uh, one seed company profiting over and over again. You've actually created, you're, about, you're growing a rhizome that will regenerate itself. And so here's where you get, you realize that the profit motive of, of a cap, of capitalist extractive agriculture, um, chemical intensive fertilizers, pesticides, and others are really bent not on feeding people and not on the long-term survival of our soils, but actually on extracting uh, profit. And so mm-hmm. the Planthropocene would hear none of that. <laughs> yeah. we, if you, in the Planthropocene, if you have to consult the plant uh, to, do any, to make any intervention, right, we, we, we wouldn't have, pave, we wouldn't, there'd be no paving over of wetlands. There mm-hmm. would be no uh, raising of the forest there would be no industrial agriculture. We'd actually have to transform our lives. We'd all have to become gardeners. Um, I don't know if this is just me, but it seems like a lot of like younger people, like people my age, I'm like 20, I'm 22. Um, like <laughs> the plants are very popular <laughs> right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I kind of, I wonder, for me, I'm like, okay, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe, like, people my age are, like, starting to, like, maybe sort of catch uh, catch this mm. idea of, like, uh, kind of, like, co-flourishing and, like, the, like, opportunity to have a, like, reciprocal relationship with, with a plant that might not be, out, like, in, like, what you would think is, like, the, the wilderness or nature, but, like, you know, mm. like, in your apartment or something like that. And I'm wondering if that kind of gives you uh, maybe the same sense of, like, hope. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, it's some of those, it's so interesting. I've been, I've been looking at social media a lot for how plant stories circulate. Mm-hmm. And it's like Instagram has all of these, these massive, massive people with massive, massive followings, and they're just posting pictures of plants with their plants. You know, we had the animal turn in, in the humanities and social sciences, and currently there is a plant turn, and people are looking to the plants because they are... Whether they're conscious of it or not, they're aware that there's something hidden from their everyday experience that may have the potential to transform our future. That was Terror Informer Amanda Rooney speaking with Natasha Myers, a professor at York University. For more information on Natasha Myers' work, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And that's all the time we have for this week. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is part of Treaty 6, 
the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Diné, and many other First Peoples, who continue to live and gather here, and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cgsr.com or tweet at Terra Informa. Thank you to all our volunteers that contributed to this week's episode, Hannah Cunningham, Sophia Osborne, Amanda Rooney, and Kezia Diaz. I've been your host, Sophia Osborne. And I'm Carter Grzitza. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. Informa.